You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. It's great to be with you. Um, I just want to bring you greetings from Louisville, Kentucky, from Boyce College and Southern Seminary, and uh, there are so many threads that connect your church and the college and seminary that I am privileged to serve, and so many churches that are praying for you, uh, cheering you on. Uh, We love Jason and Paige Dees, we love Abigail and Blake Rogers, and I feel like I've already made about 30 well, maybe more than that, friends, uh, even just this morning. And uh, just know we are uh, praying for you. We're so excited by what God's doing right here in Buckhead and in the greater Atlanta Metroplex through your witness. And uh, really looking forward to seeing what God has in the future. So you represent a real sign of gospel kingdom life, so to speak, right here in Atlanta. Um, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. So we're just going to pick up right where you are in your study of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, we're going to read the text in just a second, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. But as you're turning to Philippians 2, or you're turning it on in your Bible app, um, let me ask you, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you've been a Christian for some time, one of Jesus' disciples, I want to ask you, what is it you think that fuels you uh, to keep walking the path of Jesus? What, what is it that's going to kind of pull you along or animate you or give you that reservoir of energy, so to speak, fuel that's going to keep you going as a Christian until you reach, as we just sang, the shore of your salvation, right? You arrive at the, the final destination, which really actually is the beginning of the true story, right? When we arrive to the shore of, us, of our salvation, we will live in eternity with God, and that's actually the real story. This is kind of the, the pregame, if we can put it that way. What's going to get you there? I think the text that we're going to look at this morning and Paul's instructions and teaching to this church in Philippi, and you know some of the context, we'll review it in a moment, uh, that's going to be really instructive for you and for me as followers of Jesus to understand what is it that keeps you a Christian, keeps you moving forward, keeps you going, okay? So now that I've got your attention, I hope, let's read it together. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. That's what we're covering this morning. So hear the word of the Lord uh, from Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes this by the Holy Spirit, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom, you, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that, so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character, because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. 
since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I'm very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help to understand your word. We need your word by your Holy Spirit to do the work of transformation and restoration and renewal in our hearts and minds. So we ask that right now you would speak to us through your word. Give me clarity of speech and precision of thought. Keep me from error and give us all hearts to receive and to obey all that you have for us in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at a few things, and this is a long passage. Don't worry, this will be an on-point sermon. This is not going to go for two hours, trust me. But we've got a lot of ground to cover, so what I want to do is give you kind of the, the, the uh, high-speed view of this text, how it fits in, and we're going to try to apply it along the way. That's all we're going to do. So you could go deeper in this. This is kind of like if you like... I know in Atlanta, parts of the country, if you like good ribs, like barbecue ribs, you got to kind of, you can do a fast pass, but you're going to miss some of the good stuff. You got to kind of come back and get off the bone. Some of you are too civilized for that. You would not, you're too refined for that. But where I come from in Kentucky, we don't leave that rib unfinished. Okay, so that's what we're, what we're this morning on this text. We're going to leave some meat on the bones, I think, but you'll have to come back around and make a second pass on it in your devotional reading this week. I already lost some of you. How uncouth I seem. Blake said I was intelligent, and now you're like, he just seems uncivilized. Okay, you can judge me later at lunch. All right, Uh, let's look at what it says. First, we're going to look at this section from verse 12 to 18 where it talks about our work and God's work. Our work and God's work. And this gets at that big question I asked you to uh, to begin with. Look at first at what he says about our work. He says quite a number of things, in fact. But he says that our work is a work of obedience, it's a work of obedience. Look at what he says. Therefore, my dear friends, so this is on the basis of what's just come before, right? This passage that you heard taught last week, this teaching about this attitude that characterized Jesus, right? That he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He came as a man, right? He humbled himself. And so he says, on the basis of this, and then on the exaltation of King Jesus, on the basis of this, therefore, dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation. What is he saying? Work out your own salvation. That's his way of saying, just as you've always obeyed, now obey. In other words, work out your salvation. And some of you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're going, wait, I got some questions now. (laughs) I thought that Paul said that we're saved not by works, but by faith. I thought there was something called a Protestant Reformation about this whole thing, about faith alone, that works can't save us. So how can Paul say, you, Philippian Christians, work it out? What's he mean by that? Is that, is this an inconsistency, right? Is this just one of those inconsistencies in the Bible that, that skeptics and, and people who struggle with the, with the gospel uh, kind of ask? Is this kind of evidence, you know, piece number 455? No. Let's think about this together because I think if you miss this, you're going to have a really hard time understanding what it means to follow Jesus. 
Because Paul clearly thinks this is crucial. It's imperative to work out your own salvation. What's he mean? I think what he's saying is on the basis of Jesus' humble authority, work this salvation out. In other words, obey. Look at what he does. He appeals to their past obedience, just as you've always obeyed. Now, by the way, I don't think he means that these Philippian Christians were somehow different than you and me. They never sinned. They never stumbled. They never struggled. He's, he's speaking here in kind of hyperbolic language. You have, in other words, in the past, Philippian Christians, you have demonstrated a consistent pattern of obedience as disciples of Jesus. So just as you've done it now, keep doing it. And he also says not just the past obedience, but he says a consistent obedience. You did it when I was with you, and you did it when I wasn't with you right? You know this, if some of you are parents in the room, it's one thing, or if you're a teacher, you know this, it's one thing for the student or for your children to obey when you're in the room, and then you leave the room and all bets are off. Now, Paul's saying, I know that in your past experience, in your past example, in your past integrity, you obey whether I'm there in Philippi with you in the church, or you're obeying consistently when I'm not around. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. He says, on the basis of that, that past obedience, that consistent obedience, keep pressing forward. Work out your salvation. So what's he mean by this? Right? We've already alluded to the fact that Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by faith, not by works. Right? So what does he mean by this working out? It is a call, I think, based on what Paul teaches throughout all of his writings, it's a call to work out your salvation. And when he talks about this, he's talking about salvation past, salvation present, salvation future. Hang with me here. We're going to get a little theological. I think we often, as Christians, we do a pretty good job of thinking about the past realities of salvation. There was a time In eternity past, when God devised a plan to save a people for himself, he sent his son in the fullness of that time who became a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to save sinners from their sin, from the wrath of God, even if we can use that theological language, to rescue us from the punishment that we deserved. Past, right? And if you're a Christian, this morning you have the assurance and the confidence that on the basis of that past salvation, of what Jesus has done for you and your faith in his past salvation that you have been saved, right? Past tense. But that's not the only way the Bible talks about salvation. It's the one perhaps that we're the most familiar with, but the Bible also talks about how we are right now being saved, Right? Think you're what sometimes theologians call your sanctification. You are being transformed. Even now as you walk with Jesus in the path of discipleship, you are growing and maturing and you are being saved. It's not, it doesn't negate the past reality of your salvation. It actually amplifies it. It's the necessary evidence of your past salvation. But the Bible also talks about future salvation. Right? There is a day coming when we will be saved Fully and finally, our salvation, sometimes we like to say, will be consummated, so to speak. It'll be brought to its, cul- uh, its culmination and fulfillment. And we, look, we just sang about it, right? We, there will come a day when we will arrive at the shore of our salvation. We'll, we'll kind of, the boat will come into harbor and it will rest fully and finally for all eternity. No more sin, no more sickness, no more struggle, no more death, right? So there's past, present, and future. And Paul is saying here that your obedience right now is the way you work it out both in the present dimension, on the basis of the past dimension, in the present dimension, and as you work for and long for and look, anticipate the future dimension of your salvation. That's what it means. It, and when you say work it out, it could be like uh, math, which I know some of you, if you're like me, 
high school math was rough. That's why I became, I, I, did, I was not an engineering major. I respect you people who are good at math. But you gotta kind of work out a problem, right? Now, if you, if I do know this much about math, so uh, it, the, 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 the equation or the algorithm, it, it is what it is. It's already, the, the result of the, of the equation is what it is. It's already predetermined, so to speak. Now, unless there's like a new math that I'm not aware of. The result is already predetermined. You, as the, as the person calculating this, you just have to work it out on paper or on your TI-83, which was the calculator we had back in the day. You kids don't know about that. Maybe you had a TI-85. That was like the really cool one. You just kind of have to work out the problem, right? But the, 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 the solution's already there, so to speak, baked into the equation. You just got to work it out. Well, in a similar way, he's saying, you have to work it out. Yet you're, the salvation that you have already received that is, that is ongoing in your life and the salvation that you anticipate, it has to get worked out in your life right now in, the sp in real space and time, Philippian Christians. So we're saved by grace, but we're called to obey. And look at how he even says there's a certain way in which you're to do it. Work it out with fear and trembling. Now, what's he mean by that? I think what he's getting at is, is what we sometimes call the fear of the Lord. In other words, if you are aware of the, of the reality of your salvation, you're aware that you're saved by grace, you're aware that Jesus, the humble king, came and died and took your sin for you, you're not going to walk around with a lot of swagger, right? I mean, if you know that your salvation has been bought for you, secured for you, not because of something that you did, because you're qualified, because you're good enough, because you're more moral than your neighbor, but you're, you are saved by the blood of Christ and by His sheer grace and mercy, you're going to work it out now in the present dimension with what? Fear and trembling, humility. Your confidence isn't going to be in your own strength. You're not going to be arrogant and proud. proud. Uh, about your own performance and your own morality, you're going to recognize everything that you are, everything that you're becoming, everything that you hope to become. It is all rooted in, established in, and founded upon what Jesus has done for you. So it kills uh, arrogance. It kills Christian swagger. It kills boasting. Work it out with fear and trembling. That's the command. Do it in the spirit of humility, fearing God, not fearing God of what he might do to you, but fearing how you might bear false witness to the reality of who you are in Christ. Let me just ask you this morning, how's that working out for you? I am afraid that in a lot of our churches and communities of faith, we have preached and proclaimed a weak gospel with a cheap grace. And we have told people that following Jesus just means praying a prayer or trying to live a religious life or be somehow more moral? And then we say, okay, so you just kind of come, pray this prayer, make this decision, check a box, and then basically go on living your normal American middle-class life. And Jesus is not going to make any really radical demands on you. You just kind of, just there, there's a list of things that we know are taboo, so if you don't do those things, but you just kind of do your own thing and you're good. You've got, you've got the insurance policy now. You've got a ticket to heaven. That is so contrary to what Paul and the New Testament lifts up for us as the way of Jesus. Paul's saying, you got to work right now. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know exactly what he means by this. It is hard work. There's this blend in the Christian life of rest and work. And it's not, I'm not saying that sometimes you're resting and sometimes you're working. I'm saying if you're following Jesus, if you're walking with him as his disciples, it's a constant blend. You're always resting and working. You're resting in Jesus because he is the one who has secured your salvation. He's done it for you. And at the same time, on the basis of what he's done, you're working. 
And you know if you're trying to fight sin, right, you know that it is hard work. It's a lot easier just to give in to inertia, just, let, let, just kind of coast and move along. You have to work this thing out. It's hard to love your neighbor as yourself, especially when your neighbor's a jerk. It's hard work. It's hard work to say no to your sinful desires in your flesh, isn't it? It's hard work. It not, and not just the, no, the negative stuff, like the stuff we say no to. It's hard work to say yes to the things we're supposed to say yes to. I'm so encouraged when I come into a church and I hear, like I had this morning, of people in a church who are willing to say, I've got all the credentials, I've got the career track. Like if I wanted to, I could go down this path, but I am choosing to go down another path and go to a different part of the planet and to spend my life for the the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. That requires, though, work, doesn't it? You've got to say no to some things that the world's screaming at you, say yes to this. You have to say no to that instead, and you have to say yes to the things of Christ and his mission. It's hard work, though. Now, if, if some of you are, like, feeling shamed right now, you're like, oh, man, I feel like a failure. This, bring in this guest speaker, and I'm already feeling condemned and guilty. Hang with me a minute. I just don't want you to rush too quickly beyond this before I encourage you and reassure you. Because I think some of us need to let this sit on us a little bit and hear Paul's call right now to work it out. Because that's the call he's giving to the Philippian Christians. And this is not, like, just kind of for the varsity team. This is Paul's expectation for every follower of Jesus, that we're called right now in the present reality to work it out, to obey. But look at what he says. What's the basis? This is actually, I think, the good news here. What's the basis for our work? What what is it that's pushing us forward in our obedience? That's the second part. God's work in us, right there in verse 13. God's work. God's work, in fact, is primary. Look at what it says. For, in other words, because you work it out, because it is God who's working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. In other words, God's work is the primary work. God's work is the foundational work. We, in other words, we work because God is at work. Now, in a room like this, I don't know all of you. In fact, I don't know most of you. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're not even sure, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Like I, like I went to church a couple times. I kind of, I like Jesus. I'm not sure about people who follow Jesus. I'm not sure how I feel about them or the church, but I think I'm down with Jesus. But you're, you're, you're just kind of testing this out. One, I just want to say, I know this church is glad you're here. But I want to speak to you. The, the biggest thing you need to hear from me this morning isn't the call to work out your salvation. That, that is, that is, that's second, and as you even heard the language here, that is secondary to the primary thing. Paul says, you work it out for God is at work at you, because God's at work at you. So you have to first recognize your fundamental need this morning is not to kind of fix yourself. Your fundamental need is not to make yourself a more moral person. Like if I can just get my life right and kind of get it on the right track, then then I'll have, you know, everything's going to work out. No, that is not Christianity. You need to hear this morning the invitation and and the call to come home to God to open yourself up and say, I can't work this out on my own. The only hope I have of of transformation, of forgiveness, of of a new identity, of hope, not just in eternity but in this life, is to open myself up to you, God, and to your work of grace. Look at what he says. It's God who's working in you. This is not, Christianity is not work your way toward God. God. There are a lot of counterfeit Christianities out there, and they have big buildings and big budgets, and they get TV time, 
and the message is basically that. You, the Christian life is you working your way to get close to God. And God's kind of waiting for you. If you once you clean yourself up, once you become moral, maybe you're a little better than everyone else, then I'll, you'll, you'll be part of my family. That's not Christianity. Christianity says God has worked, is working, and continues to work, and he is in the business of bringing the dead to life. He's in the business of bringing the, 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 the prodigal sons and daughters home. So let me, let me put this out there. There is nothing that you could have done in your past that disqualifies you for this work. God's work is his own business. He chooses how and when he's going to do it, and he can take and he does take those who are far off on the margins, those who in the eyes of the world look like they have no, no business being in his family, and he brings them home. He brings them in because he is the one at work. Now look at what he says. If you're a Christian, this is really good news. Look at the characteristics of his work. It says that he does this, that he, he, he works so that we will will and work. In other words, what's he saying? God transforms us both so that we will choose to obey. He gives us a new heart, a new set of desires and impulses. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know what that feels like. You're, you go, suddenly like things are happening in here and the things that I used to want to do and, and, and think and see and participate in and all, like my desires are changing. I actually want to honor and please God. Where did that come from? Paul's telling us that's from God. That's not just because you got into a better environment. Like you chose better friends. As important as that may be, that's not a result of your environment. That's the Holy Spirit changing your heart, giving you a new will. God's at work to will and to work, right? He is giving us He's not, he's not just changing our will. He's giving us the power. He's enabling us to actually obey. That's good news. It'd be one thing if God said to you, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to kind of fix this thing here. And then you just, you just go, right? Like think of those like old wind-up toys you got when you were a kid and you'd kind of put it down on the table and you'd get them in a Happy Meal and they'd break in like 30 minutes. But you'd kind of wind them up and you know, the little penguin would do like that thing. And you just kind of, I'm just going to let this thing go. That's not what God does for his children, Paul is telling us he's at work in you both to will and to work for his good purposes. In other words, he's not only changing your desires and your will, he's actually giving you the power, he's equipping and enabling you so that you can walk in obedience. And I got to tell you, I don't know about you, but for me, that's really good news. Because on any given day, I wake up and I go, I don't know if I can do it. In fact, I know I can't do it. And I'm going to fail, I'm going to sin, I'm going to disobey, I'm going to struggle about 50 times just before breakfast because we're broken people. So we need the enabling, empowering work of God in us. And Paul says, that's what's going on in the life of every Christian. God's doing that. Living the Christian life on your own strength is impossible. It's impossible. And Paul says, you don't have to do it. You don't have to try to do it in your own strength. So let me ask you this morning, are you discouraged as a Christian? Are you kind of losing heart because of your own failure, your own just apathy? You go, it seems like every other follower of Jesus has, you know, this, this warm, like, deep devotion to Jesus, and they're raising their hands in worship, and they're having, like, and I just feel like, I just feel dead inside sometimes. You have apathy. You feel convicted of failure. Well, the good news is that God is in the business of working in his people this way. So all you have to do is ask. Lord, would you empower me? Would you do this work in me, both to will and to work for your good purpose? Look at what he also says, though. It's according to his good purposes. Now, this is really good news, too, infinitely good news. God enables us and empowers us to fulfill his good design. In other words, 
there's a practical payoff here. The path to joy, when you, when you, if you're looking for joy in life, if you want to flourish in life, you want to know happiness in life, Paul is essentially saying here, the way that you get there is by obedience. In other words, there's no path to human flourishing and meaning and fulfillment and joy apart from obedience to God. Now, there may, we are sometimes we're deceived. It can look like, man, you can basically live how you want to live, and there's some flourishing and joy and meaning. But that's really kind of a short-term lie, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes we don't live in a world where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people, and quite often a lot of bad things happen to good people. That's not how things work in this present evil age. But Paul is saying that the path in general, the path to fruition and, f- and flourishing and joy and happiness is through obedience. It's according to God's good purposes. So, how's that working out? Are you looking for joy, for happiness in something that's not God's design? Whether it's in your relationships, in your family, in your friendships, in your career? It won't pay off. It's not according to God's good purposes. He doesn't stop there, of course, right? Look at what he says about our manner of obedience. He doesn't just tell us about our work and God's work, but how are we to do this work? Now, it's interesting. Paul doesn't say, this is what you're supposed to do. He says, work it out, obey, but he doesn't actually then give us a laundry list of like a to-do list. So first start here, then do this, and get your checklist out for the Christian life. He actually gives us, instead of telling us the what, he tells us the how. Without, did you see it? without, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Without grumbling and arguing. Now, you might think he's talking here about grumbling against God. The Bible talks a lot about how, what, a, what a problem it is when human beings grumble against God. I don't think he means primarily here, though, vertical grumbling, like human beings grumbling against God. I think what he has given the context here, he actually has in mind grumbling horizontally, so to speak, with one another. I say that because of the whole context of the book, and I trust you're aware of the context here in Philippi and what Paul has to confront, uh, and even the immediate context, right? He says in the preceding verses, the whole, point of, uh, the whole point of what you studied last week is what? You're supposed to be like Jesus, have the same attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus, right? In other words, love one another, serve one another. And so I think that's why when he says here, do everything without grumbling and arguing, he's talking about with one another. So what's that? It's murmuring. It's the kind of hushed whispers of slander and gossip. It's the dissension. It's the, it's the trying to hedge your bets and protect your own interests and establish yourself over and against somebody else. I look forward every summer. One of the highlights for me is our family vacation. I think there is nothing more restful and relaxing than a week at the beach. I don't care what beach. I don't want the sharks. Apparently, they're coming out, so watch out. It's that time of year. But if you, other than the sharks, I'm cool with the beach. The beach is life-giving. Just let me, get, let me recharge and renew. But one of the hardest things about family vacations is, is the like, hours of driving, no matter where you go, where you think, I might murder one of our children. <laughs> I'm speaking hyperbolically, of course. Okay, I would never do that. But, but it's, it's, why is that? Okay, I've got three kids. They're wonderful children. I'm not, I have great kids. Love them. Let me establish that. And yet, and if you're human, you don't even have to have kids because you were a child at one point. And I don't care whether you went to the beach or whether you just went to the amusement park. You know that any family, you put them in one vehicle for about five minutes and the kids are going to start grumbling with one another, 
arguing with one another. And you will have this like out-of-body experience where you feel as a parent like you are going to come out of your seat and you're thinking, if we could have driverless cars, that's good because then I could go back there and deal with this. If I can have like my Uber driverless car, then I can go deal with these kids. Because what, what happens? They just start going at each other. And you're thinking, we're not even going to make it out of Kentucky, let alone all the way down to Florida or wherever we're going. Why is that? There is something, one of the most corrosive acids that can eat away at a family is that kind of bickering and grumbling and murmuring, right? I mean, just you, we, we know that in our own homes, in our own families. How much more so in the people of God, in God's family, in a local church, right? This, this, this trying to assert your own rights and trying to put somebody else down. I mean, just you see it in a 10-year-old, but we're not that much different, are we? We're still the same little kids who like to bicker and murmur and grumble and try to get the other kid in trouble. And I'm sure in your family, it's not in mine. And we're just like that. And, and that corrosive acid of grumbling and murmuring that just kind of eats away and, and, and dissolves family harmony and unity, it works the same way in a local church. So how are you doing on that? I think the warning here is you can have all the right theological boxes. You can be really, really orthodox. That's a technical term. You can have all the right theology from Scripture. And you can be marked by this, grumbling and murmuring, arguing with one another. And if it can ruin a family vacation, trust me, it can ruin a church. Let me just speak to you, frankly, pastorally, to you, Christ Covenant Buckhead. You are at such a critical moment in your life as a church when the enemy would love to come in right when things are looking like they're launching things. I mean, there's, there's so much excitement here, isn't there? You come in on a Sunday morning, you can just tell God is at work. Praise be to God. And at the same time, let me just warn you and caution you. That's exactly when the enemy likes to come in and try to pit you against one another, get you murmuring against one another, saying, I felt like I was overlooked for this, or you know, she got treated differently than I did, or they didn't, they didn't ask about me, or I didn't get asked to serve there, or I don't like the way they did the music, or just go down the list. And next thing you know, you are falling apart as a family. So you need to hear this, Christ Covenant Buckhead. You need to hear this this morning. Resolve this morning to have the mind of Christ, to love one another, and to do everything without grumbling or murmuring. I'm going to speed up here. Don't worry. Uh, he says other, uh, as well that our obedience, our working it out, is a public, it leads to a public demonstration of obedience. A public demonstration of obedience. Now, this is not what you might think. When he says, so that, verse 15, do this, do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. He's not saying, basically, you know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? Forget that. Be like the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were these self-righteous religious uh, people in the New Testament and the Gospels who loved to make sure that everyone knew how holy they were. Right? They were self-righteous. Paul's not saying that. Like if you're obedient, everyone's going to see it and kind of just go, oh my goodness, they're so religious. Aren't they amazing? That's not what he's saying. And you're going to see in a moment why I think it's so different than the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. But what he is saying is that the way we love one another, the way we work out our salvation together as the people of God, the way we obey together as followers of Jesus, there is something that will happen. What happens? You will be like a shining star in a dark night sky. It will 
there will be a brilliance to your life together as the people of God in the middle, and he puts it in pretty strong language, doesn't he? In the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. Paul is a realist. He goes, I know the context you're in in Philippi. I know how opposed to the kingdom of Christ that culture is. But let me tell you, when you live this way, it will shine. It will stand out. Not because you're religious, not because you're self-righteous, but because you love one another, because you live together in community and obedience this way. And look at how he says it, by, how is this going to happen? By holding fast to the word of life. In other words, by clinging to the gospel. The gospel is what fuels all this. God's work in you as you work it out. This is all part of the good news of the word of life. Well, lastly, in this section, he says, there's something about our obedience that will produce joy in others. That's the whole point, I think, of verses 16 uh, through 18. Paul, we're not going to have a lot of time to get deep into this, but he essentially is saying that there there will come a time when Paul anticipates boasting in them. It's right there in verse 16. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing or for in vain. What's he saying? He's saying when Jesus comes back to set all things right and, and everyone is judged, he goes, on that day I'm going to boast. And we just saying we're not going to boast in anything but in Christ. All I have is Christ. So is that at odds with, with this? No, Paul is saying, absolutely, I'm going to boast in Christ. But why is he going to boast in them? He's saying because my work won't be, have done in, won't be in vain. He's saying this, by the way, chained up in a Roman prison awaiting his execution. It looks like he's a failure. You, you, if, you, if you could have kind of a video camera in his prison cell, you'd be thinking, your ministry is a, it was a joke, Paul. You're locked up, incarcerated, awaiting execution on death row by the Roman Empire. So I think this, we can call this a failure. And Paul's saying to them, no, no, if you work your salvation out in this way, if you persevere and God keeps you and you love one another in this way and you shine like bright stars in this world, then it's not in vain. I'm going to boast in you. And it's not self-boasting. Look at what else he says. And this is, this is hard for us to get the metaphor here, the analogy. He says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. What's that about? The drink offering was, uh, you, you, if you, in the Old Testament, you'd have an, uh, have an animal sacrifice, or, or sometimes even non-animals. Uh, that'd be vegetables or whatever, you know, non-animals. Okay, forget that for a minute. You'd have, an, you'd have the main sacrificial object, but times you would pour out kind of an extra little drink offering on top of it. So he's saying basically the, the sacrifice of your obedience and faithfulness to God, that's the thing that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, so, I'm, I'm boasting in. And if I've got to die in this ministry as a martyr for Jesus, then my death really is just like a little bit of gravy on top. Okay, we get that in Atlanta, right? Uh, this, is, this is just a little bit extra on top, and it will just be to, 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 to the magnification of the glory of God in Christ. I'm glad if that's the case, and I rejoice with all of you. Now, Paul expects this, by the way, to be standard Christianity. Standard Christianity. Not, not as I said, varsity Christianity. Super Christians. Like, there are some Christians who are called to shine like bright, brilliant stars in the middle of a, of a, of a dark world. And he says, this is, this is for all of you, Philippians. This is for all of you, Christ Covenant Buckhead. So again, let me ask you, how's this working for you? Just think with me through your career, your workplace. I, I don't know all of you. I don't know where you work. Some of you are in school. I don't know where you go to school. You all have different callings, different vocations. 
But if you had to kind of assess, if you had to have like an out-of-body experience and kind of look in on your own life in your office, in your university, wherever God's placed you, do you think, would you say that you shine like this, that you shine like stars in the world? Or are you thinking, oh, that's for like, I don't know, Jason or Blake, or like the, the Christian pastor guy. I don't know how to do that in my company. I don't know how to do that as an entrepreneur. I don't, I don't like, I do that at church. I don't do that Monday through Friday. I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it, but help me out. I don't even know what that would look like. I think it, it, it shows up in all kinds of incarnational ways. It shows up in the way we treat one another. It shows up in the way we speak, in the way we lead, in the way we love. And if you're living and working and operating and teaching and whatever God, calling God's giving, if you're doing it basically just like the world, then there's something missing. Maybe it's a good day to take stock of that in our own families. Are we demonstrating this obedience to the glory of God? Well, lastly, there's this section. We're going to move very quickly here at the end. There's this section, uh, these two examples. Verses 19 through 30, we're going to go real quick here, and then I'll be in my seat. Paul gives us essentially two examples of what it looks like to work out your salvation. This is what it looks like to live in this way. And I just got to tell you, briefly as time's running out, I love this about the Bible. It'd be one thing if God had given us his scripture and it was just kind of abstract instruction, right? Do this, live like this, let me tell you some truth. But it's actually, we forget, it's written by real people to other real people in real space and time. And so there's a real concrete person named Timothy and a real actual historical person named Epaphroditus who Paul can point to, not just for the Philippian Christians, but for you and for me and say, okay, let me help you out with this. This is what it looks like in a real person. So we can get real now. I can give you a concrete example of what it looks like and what it might look like for you in your workplace or in your family or in your school. We don't have time to cover it all, but let me just mention them briefly. Timothy is covered there in verses 19 through 24. Some of you know this, and, he, and Paul alludes to it. Timothy was um, a, a disciple, so to speak, of Paul, a follower. He, he was a student with Paul. Uh, Timothy was Jewish by family background and had been led to faith in Christ through his mother and grandmother, we know. And he's saying, like, I, I want to send him to you so that you'll be encouraged by them, and, 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 and he'll, I'll be encouraged as I hear back report from Timothy, but I can't yet, right? There's something that Timothy has to complete in his ministry there in Rome uh, with Paul. But I want you to hear one thing that he, I just want to single out one thing. Look at what he says. I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. Look at verse 21. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What stands out about Timothy in contrast with all these other people, whoever these other people are, that, that Paul could have sent, what stands out about Timothy is that while other people look out for their own interests, Timothy does not. And by the way, this is not just here in like random, like I guess Paul had a little extra space in the parchment, so he threw this in. No, Paul's saying this is what it looks like to count others as better than yourself. This is what it looks like to live and love like Jesus, to not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but to empty yourself, right? So that section that you heard last week, now Paul's saying, this is what it looks like. It looks like this in Timothy's life. He is not primarily concerned with his own interests. He's concerned with your well-being. Others look out for their own interests. Timothy does not. And by the way, this is a vital lesson for Christian leadership. 
And I don't care if you're a CEO or a school teacher or an assistant principal or a bus driver or you work in, in, in any context or calling. You know, you run the, you're, you're a chef. You, 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 you work in an accounting firm. I don't care. Every one of you is called in some capacity to lead, to lead others. And think about this with me for a minute. Timothy's a leader. Timothy's called to lead. And what does, he t- what does this tell us? Well, it's a vital lesson. Christianity and Christians don't ask what's in it for me, but how can I serve you? A Christian leader isn't stingy with time and energy and resources, but they're generous and they seek to leverage people and resources and opportunities for the good and for the well-being of the people of God. Christian leaders... I think part of not looking after your own interests but that of others, is Christian leaders don't see people as objects to be manipulated for your own agenda, but rather as sons and daughters of God made in His image who are to be equipped and enabled to flourish. You can, and that's not just for the church, by the way. If you're, a, if you're an executive in a business, if you're a teacher, whatever you're calling, this is true for every one of God's people, to lead and to love like Timothy, to put the interest of others above your own. Look at what else he says, though, about Epaphroditus, and then we're done. Epaphroditus, what do we know about him? Well, he's a Gentile. He's Greek. So Timothy's the Jewish believer. Epaphroditus, because of his name, we know he was Greek. He was a Gentile. I think, by the way, I don't have time to preach a second sermon. Some of you are relieved by that. But it's interesting that Paul speaks in the same way, essentially, about the quality and 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 his relationship with Timothy and Epaphroditus, a Jew and a Gentile, both alike. But he does say, I am going to send, I can't send Timothy, but I am going to send Epaphroditus back to you. Now, we know a little bit from the letter that Epaphroditus had come from Philippi to see Paul in Rome, and he had brought from the church um, both encouragement and some report, as well as some sort of material support, presumably like a financial gift to help Paul during his imprisonment in Rome. And Paul's saying, I'm sending him back. Now, listen to me. Why is he sending him back? Paul says that the reason he's sending him back is right there in verse 26. Look at what it says. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Apparently, and we know this from the rest of the context that we read, Epaphroditus had had some sort of near-death illness. I mean, so close to death you know, that, that he almost died, Paul says. But the interesting thing is Paul doesn't say, I'm sending him back so he can get some R&R. I'm sending him back so he can kind of get his physical strength back. He says, I'm sending him back because Epaphroditus is so burdened and distressed at the thought that you guys are worried about him. The reason this guy's torn up isn't because he doesn't feel well. The reason he's torn up is because he knows you guys are worried for him. And so Epaphroditus wants to get back basically to put you at ease. I got to tell you, I am not like Epaphroditus. <laughs> I'd be saying like, I, I want to get out of Rome because like people are about to get executed here. I want to get back to Philippi because that's where my family is. I want to get back to Philippi because that's where my people are. But he's saying, no, Epaphroditus wants to get back because he's burdened for you. It's the same fundamental reality with Timothy. It's the same fundamental reality that we're all called to, to work out our salvation without, and do it to do everything without grumbling and arguing. kingdom of God looks this way, it works this way, and as it works this way, we welcome back and we honor people. That's what he says there at the end of the chapter, doesn't he? Honor men such as this, honor people like this. In other words, the path to glory, the path to leadership, the path to influence is the path of humility, it's the path of sacrifice, it's the path of love.
It's the path of Epaphroditus. It's the path of Timothy. It's frankly the path of Paul. It's also, by the way, the path of Jesus. So, what can we say about that? The in conclusion here, all these human examples, by the way, are just shadows of the real thing. Whether it's Paul, whether it's Timothy, whether it's Epaphroditus, they're shadows of the real thing. What does it look like to ad- have this attitude, or as Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus? It looks like this, to put others' interest above your own, to work out your salvation in this way. So what are you holding on to this morning? What are you holding on to this morning, whether you're not a Christian and this is all new to you? What's keeping you from trusting in Christ? What's preventing you from giving your life to Him, submitting yourself to Him? And and because I can tell you the whole point of this is the only way you're going to find fulfillment and joy and meaning and security and identity is by giving your life to Jesus, by trying to work it out in your own strength and rather handing your life over to Him and saying, God, would you work it out in me? Would you transform me and save me? But even if you are a Christian, what what are you holding on to or what's getting in your way of living like this? What idols of your heart, what are you living for? What are the things that you're holding on to that are preventing you from living this kind of life where, you're, where you'd be able to say like Paul, even if I die, even if my life gets taken from me and I get poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of your obedience, I'm great. I'm going to rejoice in that. That's for every one of us. Praise be to God. Look to God, the only one who can keep you. God is working in you both to work and to will for His good pleasure. This morning, He's working. So let's pray and ask Him to keep doing that work. Father, we love You. We trust You. But we want to love You more. We want to trust You more deeply. So we ask, Father, in faith because your word tells us that you are in the business of working in us, both to will and to work for your good purposes. We ask that you would keep working in us, not because of our obedience, not because of anything that we've done, but because of your grace. And that as you work in us, Lord, that we would walk in obedience. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, perhaps even feeling convicted of sin and idolatry and just ways in which we have not been faithful to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, today, not, not, don't give us shame. I pray that you would replace shame and guilt because you came to deliver us from that. Replace it with hope and humility and love and faith. Strengthen us by your power to walk in obedience. And I pray, Lord, for anyone right here this morning who's here and is kind of just curious about Jesus. Or maybe it's been a long time since they've been in a church. And they thought that the church wasn't for people like them. They thought that Christianity was for people not like them. I pray, Lord, this morning that by a simple faith, trusting in Christ alone as a a Savior, as a substitute, that their hope would be in Jesus. That, That they would come home to you and in Christ alone, find the hope that can only lead to eternal life. Do this in us, we pray, Lord, by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.